My name's Steve. I'm uh, one of the elders here. We're glad that you're worshiping with us today. Um, I want to start off with a quote as we get started today. This quote is by Nate Silver. I don't know how familiar you are with Nate Silver. Uh, he got to be well known because of his website 538 because in 2008 he accurately predicted the entire electoral outcome of the election and since then everybody has looked at him as if he knows everything and he has this book that he has uh, just released a few years called um, The Noise and the Signal and it's, the, uh, it's about the idea of how we now have the ability to foresee things that we might not have earlier. But in making this distinction, there's a quote that he says that I think outlines something that uh, we misunderstand, that I think is helpful for us to understand. He starts off by defining what a prediction is. And in the ancient way, a prediction was what the soothsayer, easy for me to say, soothsayer told you. So what it was saying is that in the ancient days, those, you know, people who, who fancied themselves as those who could tell the future, those soothsayers, I can't even say it, but they, they offered up predictions, whereas today what we have are forecasts. And a forecast implied planning under conditions of uncertainty. It suggested having prudence, wisdom, and industriousness more like the way we now use the word foresight. And here's what's interesting, friends, within this. Because uh, centuries ago, your ability to predict predict things that would happen was lacking. And that's why it was usually uh, wrapped around some sort of religious experience. Because if you were right, it was like, oh, the gods have blessed me and this is how I figure things out. Whereas today, we have gotten used to the idea that we can tell what is going to happen. We're preparing for a trip to go overseas to Europe here in the next few weeks. And we have been looking religiously at the weather forecast for what's happening so we could pack appropriately. And the funny thing is about it, even up till this weekend, so once you could see the date and even till today, there's been just a wild vacillation between all the numbers that you have no flipping idea what it will be. And as much as we hold that frustration with the weather, we have taken that upon ourselves to say that we want to be able to predict how everything will happen. Is it not true? To the extent that now, if we can't predict exactly what will happen, we get incredibly frustrated. Not to bring up the political, but, you know, why not? Uh, One of the things that was so interesting about this last election was that nobody was calling for Trump to be able to win the election. And the thing that I love about that most of all is even his family had planned vacations because there's like, there's no way that we're going to actually win this thing. And yet he was victorious so that they had to change anything. It's like, oh yeah, we knew it was happened. No, they didn't because all of the, predicting, the predictive modeling was wrong. And I'll offer you is that's one of the reasons why I think people were so frustrated about it. Because they felt absolutely helpless. Because they were like, this is what is going to happen. Everybody knows it. Why even wait for an outcome? And friends, I'm going to say that we've started to rewire ourselves where we think this world makes a lot more sense than it really does. I think we're becoming arrogant in our ability to predict. 
And that's like with what David introduced right here. We came off this series of dwell. And, you know, I was even here for a few Sundays. But I listen online. I don't know if you all make that a habit. But when I'm out of this fellowship, I try to be in here. That's one of the reasons why we put the sermon online. And I could, uh, you know, hear Eric a few weeks when he spoke. And Kelly last week. It was just an opportunity. But that series dwell was supposed to get us refocused on on just looking at the things around us that we don't necessarily expect happen, right? We want to, we wanted to, to, to be able to look up and see the view. And with this next series that we're going to start here, taking us to Easter, this series on Jonah, we're going to look about those unexpected things within our own lives. And if we don't have them right now, we are going to have them in the very near future. So what you and I need to do is rewire the way that we think to expect the unexpected and see God's role in that. And that's what we're going to do over the next four weeks. In order to do this, we have to understand a little bit about this book in the Bible. And if you want to even work your way there already, we're in Jonah chapter 1 today. In the Blue Bible, it's page 654, page 654. I love the book of Jonah. Maybe one thing is because it's short. And if you get bored today, you could read through the end of it and ruin everything. I'm going to ask for you to hold back. Stay with us, okay? But here's some of the things about Jonah. Is Jonah happens in the Old Testament. So this is before Jesus actually lived. It happens after, however, kings David and Solomon. And this is just uh, about 500 years or so before Jesus was born. And it comes in this point, friends. Really, this is about 700 years before Jesus was born. Where God's people have sinned so badly that God said, I'm going to allow you to be overtaken by certain peoples. And this people group, the first one that came in, was the Assyrians. And I don't know if you've heard of the Assyrians, if you are a fan of the uh, graphic novel, the comic uh, 300, or maybe you saw the movie that this is Sparta. The enemy in that is supposed to be Assyria. And they were, you know, maybe they didn't have that many, like, weird, you know, morphed body parts as we saw in that movie. But the thing was that this army and this people did exist. And not only did they exist, but they were probably the most brutal army that ever lived. And I say this as somebody, you know, as a a group of people that lived 2,700 years ago and did not have all the modern weapons that, you know, we saw on display through world wars. And yet this army was known for their brutality. Just something to show you, which I don't know if you're going to see it real, uh, if you'll be able to see it. I had two slides in a row. I'll come back to that one. But this is a relief, a carving that was made by the Assyrians themselves. And you can see that they are armed themselves here. Here's our archers. These are supposed to be siege works. And they revolutionized the way that you would attack a walled city. Because walled cities existed for safety. So what they did is build huge towers. It would launch them against the wall and then hop over the towers and destroy the city from the inside. The last thing I have to show you within this relief... And this is one of the things the Assyrians prided themselves are. I don't know if you can see these three sticks right here. What they are are people impaled on sticks. So they would take a a person, kill them, then run their body on a pole and lift it up everywhere they went. There were impaled bodies everywhere. And the message they wanted to portray was, we are the baddest dudes who have ever walked the face of the earth. Do not mess with us. Those were the Assyrians. 
And those were the enemies of the people of the earth that time, and they were going to become the enemies of God's people. I'll say this really quick, too, because we're, we're reading the book of Jonah. Jonah's a minor prophet. And sometimes you're like, what's minor? You know, could he, did, did he just not, like, finish his, like, you know, his thesis? And if he had gotten that done, then maybe he could graduate. But in the Old Testament, we have 17 books of the prophets and five of them are major just because of their volume. But Jonah is part of these, uh, part of what is known as the Book of the Twelve. And what that meant, it was just some short vignettes of prophets. And normally God called these prophets to talk against the evil people that faced his people. So here we are, Jonah chapter 1. Kendra is going to read for us. She has the microphone of power. And Kendra, can you start by reading verses 1 through 3 of Jonah chapter 1? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and, and headed for Tarshish. Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship um, bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Easy for you to say, right? Tarshish. It's a fun place to be. Okay, so here's what I just said and alluded to. The idea that the Old Testament is full of judgment on people who come against God's people. So God's people were chosen. It doesn't mean that they were perfect because the only people group that God criticizes more than those who attack his people are his people themselves. So he spends a lot of time saying, guys, just I'm your God. Let's have a good relationship. You keep messing this up. But mostly when there's an evil work at hand, God calls the prophet to speak out to that. He becomes their voice, his voice, a messenger to be able to say something powerful. And I should stop parenthetically here to say this because even in today's church culture, there are some who are just a little bit more free-flowing. The people, I've seen people on their business card have the title prophet on it. And I'm going to tell you is that even though that might be cute and fancy free, prophets as existed in the Old Testament do not exist today. And here's the best thing about it is that half the people I've seen with business cards that say prophet on it, like live high on the hog. Like they're driving a nice ride. They live in a light house and they've got money for miles. And this was the antithesis of what it meant to be a prophet. If you read through one of the major prophets, Ezekiel, God said, hey, Ezekiel, I got a good mission for you. I want you to live in a cave for like a year. I want you to lay on your side and I want to cook your food over your own poo. You know, like that is prophet work. Prophet work sucks. And this was a mission of suck for Jonah because the Lord called Jonah and said, listen, I want you to go talk to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was one of the two capitals of Assyria. So he said, I want you to go to the Assyrians. You remember them, right? The, the stick people, you know, like the biggest, baddest dudes on the block. I want you to go to them and preach my message of condemnation upon them. So if you see the beginning of the story right here, you're going to start to think that the, the way this story worked out should have been, and I don't think I dropped the map right here, it should have been God versus Nineveh, right? It's God going to Nineveh and saying, look, you all are disgusting, you need to fix up or I'm going to fix you. It's what the story would seem to be. But then we get to verse 3, right? And what happened in verse 3? Jonah gets this message, you're supposed to go to the Assyrians and tell them my judgment. And Jonah says, got it. And he goes and hops on a boat. And he's going to Tarshish. And we don't really know where Tarshish is, but the best that commentators have been able to figure out is Tarshish is the modern-day city in Spain of Cadiz, okay? Here, right north of Gibraltar. 
on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, we think this is where Jonah was trying to get to. The problem is, with him being at the point of origin in the land of Palestine, it was, number one, the opposite way, right? Number two, it was you know, you're not going to, that's, that's like not even on the way. It's not like, hey, I'm going to just skirt by. No, you're, you're going on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea. And here's the third thing too. The trip to Nineveh was a land trip and he decides to hop on a boat. So what Jonah is signifying here, and even if Tar- Tarshish is not in Kadit, even if somewhere else, the very manner that he chooses to get there, a boat, shows that he is at the point where he does not want to obey this command. And there's the first unexpected turn of our story. Because the first unexpected story part in our story is not that it's God versus the Assyrians. It's really God Versus his product, his prophet. And that's what we call a plot twist. And that's interesting. Now, a few things that I love about this, and this is one of the things, you know, some of us have been in church a long time. We look at the Bible, we think it's the staid book. But really think about the storytelling right here. Because there is nothing like it in ancient literature. Because here we go. It, 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 the, the simple explanation of how the world works Right, the predictive modeling, if you will, if you were in informatics or something like that, you would say that we have good world, bad world. God is good. There's lots of bad people. God calls his prophet, who has to be good, to speak to the bad. Like it's very simplistic, laid out, stayed in exactly the way we would think it would be. However, it never usually plays out this way. And this story is so too. So you think that the, when God wants to address the most evil people, who have ever lived, the story would be more about their conflict, not the conflict that he's having with his mouthpiece, with the voice, with the messenger behind this. And yet this is exactly how it happened. Why? Because I think it's just beautiful storytelling. And that's one of the things that I'm telling you, I'm absolutely loving living in today's society because as much as, you know, movies used to be such a massive thing, movies are being eclipsed right now with powerful TV writing. Have you noticed that? Like, I, I will go through Netflix sometimes, and I'll be even a little leery just to watch a movie because I'm like, nope, it's just not where I want it to be. I don't want them to try to wrap something up in two hours. I'd rather watch a 10-episode series of 10 hours because I know they're going to take me. It's more of an investment, but they're going to take me through twists and turns and just make things really complex. It's what I find myself watching right now. It's more television. And I think the one thing that has made television come back is people have understand that those complex stories are what really catch, us, catch our attention. Isn't it? We like an interesting story. This is a very interesting story. Now, before we spend the next few weeks just dumping all over Jonah because he's an idiot, and I'm going to, again, ruin some of the ending. He is an idiot. But at some point, the story got written down, so he had to have been complicit somehow. So Jonah realizes eventually he's an idiot too. So... Really, Jonah's probably better than us. But let's just get to this basic moment. Why does he run? God tells me to do something. You know, aren't some of you begging for that in your lives? Just like, Lord, just tell me to do something and I'll do it. And God talks to Jonah and, and to the extent that he's just like, I'm getting as far away from what God wants me to do as possible. Why does that happen? Because Jonah's human, Right? And as much as we might say, no, I'm a believer, I take the power of God upon me and I'm going to live that out publicly, friends, we always fail, don't we? We always do. 
You say, Lord, I'm going to live truer to your word this week, and you're flipping off the guy driving on your way to work, right? God, I'm going to show love in greater ways than you've ever asked me to do, and yet you're incredibly rude to your own family. It's what we do. We don't live this out. This is one of the reasons that I love the story of Jonah. You can see why he ran, right? But what God's going to do is convince him he should have done otherwise. Let's do us now, Kendra, a favor. Go ahead and read verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. Oh, wait. Can I stop here? Because I, I don't know what's next. That's wrong. Which is, there we go. It's funny. I didn't delete the slide. I just added another one. Like, let's not read that. Let's read 4 through 7, please. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us that, he will not peri- that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. There's terrific storytelling. Jonah's out going the opposite way. God says, you want to take a boat? I'll show you what boat travels life when I'm ticked off. God brings a huge storm. A storm to the extent that even the sailors who are used to managing storms are frightened. One of the best little hidden aspects of the story is that they begin to throw their cargo into the sea. And in some ways, we're all like, well, that makes sense, right? Because you want to make sure that everything is displaced. There's two actions we see, I think, and the reason why they threw that stuff into the sea. The first thing they thought is that our survival is at stake here. We might not live through this. And Steve's going to pause and mute this. Will you mute me? I'm going to cough. This is I've been struggling with this thing all week. And I said, no lozenges. I'm going to plow through. Okay. So, you know, let's, let's throw the cargo into the sea because they're like, that will heighten our chances of survival. We'll understand that as much as that was their immediate survival, it was also their financial survival. If they were making a trip across the Mediterranean, they probably had great valuables in there. And they decided, you know what, the best way for us to survive right here is just to get rid of this stuff. Which means basically somehow we're, we're going to choose death another way. Either we're going to die in the sea or we're going to die when we make it to the port and they realize that we don't have their stuff, but let's do it. There's also this thing is maybe they figured out or they thought we must have something on board here that is just bad news. So let's chuck that stuff out and maybe whoever God that they're doing is in this area, maybe they'll be fine with it. They begin to pray. Which is funny because these sailors have been from port to port. And one of the things we see in the ancient world is that religion thrived in ports. So they probably weren't actually of one religion. They probably picked up a a bunch of them as they went. And they're probably going through the smorgasbord of deities. Hoping that they find the right one. So it's just like, okay, you're good now. Like, so they're like, hey, everybody pray. You know, so they're throwing all these prayers up. And the one thing we find in the Bible is as much as false gods were cried out to, they could never react. And still the storm is raging. Where's Jonah? Where's Jonah during this great storm? This is a great point. He's just like getting a nap. Got to get get my sleep in. Never know what's going to happen. One of the things that I love about this is that does this not sound like another Bible story right here? Is anybody seeing this? In Mark chapter 4, Jesus was in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with his Boy Scout troop. 
and they're managing the boat. He's like, guy's going to catch some Z's. He's sleeping down, and they're like, Jesus, we're, we're drowning out here. We're going to die, and you're taking a nap. And some of you might be like, hey, isn't that what Jonah was doing? Yes, but it was the opposite perspective of this because Jesus brought life to the situation, right? So this is what's funny. The storm is happening, and Jesus comes out. He's like, let's stop that. The storm is just everything Jesus did brought life to the situation. What Jonah is being throughout this chapter, and it's interesting if you see it, The text implies it. He's actually bringing death to the situation. God gives him the message, and the first thing he does is flee. Then we see him, you know, we see him running from God, and then we actually see him going down to the boat. And again, this is spoiler alert, but I'm assured that everybody understands that Jonah's going to end up in a fish somehow. So he's going to end up in the ocean. Somebody's like, oh, man. He could have wickied it. It would have been fine. So here's the thing. Jonah is on a path toward death. And it's almost like he's trying to hide in this point to the extent that the sailors come down and they're like, dude, pray to your God. Let's see if he does something. And notice this is very interesting. Does Jonah actually comply? He doesn't. Jonah doesn't even pray. They're just at the point where all hope is lost. And they're like, let's cast lots. And this sounds, you know, it's just like, let's gamble at this point. It's not what it was. It was like if the gods they've thought in that day determined what would happen is that would show out if we cast these lots like rolled dice or you know spun the bottle or whatever which is a weird metaphor to bring into the sailor i don't know but the point was is that it it was determined that it was jonah so now they want to know what happened let's see what else transpires here kendra if you'll read verses 8 through 12 please so they asked him tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. So they go to Jonah and they say, what's the deal? What have you done wrong? They're like, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, what, what's your job? He's like, prophet. They're like, oh. Like, which, which, which God do you profit for or whom or whence? And he says, God of the Hebrews. And they're like, oh, no. Right? I love the reaction right here. And think about it. These are sailors who have gone to all these different ports and seen all these different gods. And they're like, just please don't say Hebrew. Please don't say Hebrew. Please don't say Hebrew. He says Hebrew. And they're like, oh, snap. Like, we're dead. We're all, we're dead. Why? Because the reputation of God had grown so greatly that even it was not seen equal religion, equal to the other religions and faith. This is something I think we have to grapple with on a personal level. This is parenthetical, but I think it's something applicable as friends, is that one of the reasons that so many scholars have spent so, many time, so much time of their, of their lives critiquing the Christian faith is because ours is a faith that is unparalleled in the entire world. And, and this isn't just an ordained minister bragging of such, but as you look at the nature of our sacred texts, if you look at how the Bible was developed, if you look at the way that it exists in its practice and the way that it's amalgamous, unlike nearly any other religion, the only one, the only other religion that can go and transcend people groups as dynamically is actually uh, Buddhism. And then Buddhism just amalgamates into whatever culture it is, and it looks more like the culture than it does just pure Buddhism. There's nothing like Christianity out there. 
And that's one of the reasons why if you hear detractors or see this, you have to understand is that it, it, it resonates because, again, I'm telling this story from a small ancient book for 27 years, 2,700 years ago, and you all know what's going to happen, right? Why? Because these stories have a, a compelling nature that is unlike any other religion that exists. And Jonah's like, I've got the solution, throw me overboard. Simple solution. You know what Jonah basically is saying right here? He's like, I want to die. And by the way, see how this story has transpired here. Interestingly enough, why is Jonah on the boat? Jonah's on the boat because he thought, if I go preach a message of repentance to the worst kingdom that's ever lived, I'm going to die. I don't want to die. I'm going to go the other way. To now the extent that Jonah is like, I need to be dead. You know, because apparently God has it out for me. I disobeyed his order. I was a prophet. I deserve what I'm going to get. So they are really wrestling with this request. But understand this, and this is, I think, something that puts within uh, us a context to understand. Because I know, you know, just even statistically wise, there are some of us who are struggling with thoughts of depression or different aspects of how this world just is caving in on us. We've reached our last straw. Maybe right now you're struggling just to get through day by day and you're looking in the mirror and you're like, why am I so pathetic? But here's one of the things, friends. Not then do we all go here, but even those called by God who have been here before. Jonah was so distraught that he thought the only way out is death. And you, you know what? Jonah's a minor prophet. One of the major of majorest prophets in the Old Testament is Elijah the prophet. And Elijah, after being called by God to do one of the most miraculous things that had ever happened, who had a victory for the Lord within 48 hours, was ready for death because of how dark things had gotten in his life. The hard thing for us to say, and you know, this is something that you know, we as a church, we don't have the resources to handle, but I will say... You know, if, if you're struggling with those things right now, will you do me a favor? There's some great people here. Let people know. Let people know how you are because we all have dark times. I hope this at least had some hope to some of you where, you know, even those called by God had the darkest of times. And Jonah was unable in his darkest time to see the story of redemption that God would provide him that he just asked for death. Throw me overboard. Throw me overboard. If you're feeling like throw me overboard, understand our God is bigger. And that's why, again, this story, the, and again, teasing ahead, but one of the unexpected terms is God's going to redeem Jonah from this feeling that he has where all is lost. God doesn't care about me. No, God will provide redemption through that. He provides redemption in our stories too. Kendra, do me a favor. We're going to close out our text this morning. Read verses 13 through 16, please. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. If you want to find out what happens in that belly, come back next week. Let's go pre-belly right here. Let's look at what happened within this thing. Because this is what I love about the story. 
Because these are the little things, even if you know the whole fishtail of it all, you don't even see this aspect of it. Jonah's like, hey guys, here's the plan, throw me overboard. And it's hilarious because if I had been there and been in the midst of this, and we found out that this, you know, we were going to die because this guy was a tool, I'd be like, here, I got his legs, right? Like I'm lining up to fling this dude overboard, which, you know, I, I guess this doesn't happen. I'm not like... People are like, I don't want to go on a cruise line with Steve because he's just a little off kilter. I'm just saying, if I was here, if you were here, I think we'd all agree. Let's chuck that dude overboard. Let's be done with it. And we see by the reaction is that once he's overboard, the calm comes down. But this is the thing that I think is most unexpected about this story. Who here in the story really has the ethical construct to do what is right? The sailors. The sailors are the ones who, have, who are pagans. They have no religious leanings. They've just heard a bunch of stories because they, they know how good the God of Hebrews is, but you know, they have this smorgasbord of faith. They're just doing what gets that by. And when it comes to the point when they're like, hey, we can kill our problem. Remember, they've already chucked all the cargo, so they've lost all that. Let, you know, might as well throw a dude overboard. Like, you know, let's see if it helps, right? And they're like, no, we, we can't do that. So they're trying to do everything. Jonah has to convince them, no, I'm serious. This is the best thing for you. Throw me overboard. And it's just like reluctantly, you know, they're like, okay, well, you know, it's like you stand, stand on the ledge and then somebody's going to back into, you know, it's like they're, they're really apologetic about how they're going to chuck this dude into the sea. And yet he ends up there and then the storm is calmed. This is what one old preacher, this is something from my files from 20 years ago. So whenever I talk about this story, I love it, is that the sailors were willing to get rid of the prophet, F-I-T, but not the prophet. And I was just like, that's slick. So that's not Steve, but I'm selling this. You know why I'm selling this to you today? Because really, I think this is the unexpected turn of the story. Because how we usually construct our world is that there's good people that God has called, there's bad people who God wants to smite, and the twain shall never meet. And we think it's easy to come into that Friends, one of the toughest things for me, and I've worked in churches and in the church industry, and yes, there is such a thing as the industry, for two decades of my life, and the hardest thing that I've had to deal with is all the horrible, horrible stories committed by people who are supposed men and women of God. And there's a lot of those that I just have to keep bottled up because there's no good way to say it. I've had to speak out against some of it sometime, and it never turns out well. Do you know why that is? It's because we have the paradigm established that we think that there's good people that God blesses. There's bad people that God wants to condemn. And that's how the world works. Friends, the story is much more complicated than that. It takes more than an hour and a half. It takes an hour series, a a, a 10 series to get through these points. And what you see in that is what I see in me. Sometimes on my best day, I'm amazing. I'm the man of God that I'm called to be. But man, if some of you caught me on your worst day, you'd be like, I can't be in a church where that guy's a shepherd of the congregation because on my worst day, I'm pretty pathetic. But the key to Jonah, the key to my life, I hope the key to your life too is this. Our God is a God who redeems. And even when we're at our best, and even when we're at our worst, it doesn't matter because it's the grace of Jesus that carries us through. And that's why we're proud to be called Christians. And that's why we see the story. And we're going to see here in the book of Jonah that the story of grace continues out through all of these unexpected turns. And even in all these turns, we see that God knows what he's doing.
God knows what he's doing. Not just here in Juneau, but in your life too. So do me a favor. Let go of the reins a little bit, right? Just trust that God's going to move and take you through some unexpected turns, but he has the best for you.